the life of Joseph tonight from Genesis 37. And uh, we're going through this uh, series from Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at uh, the verse that talks about Joseph from Hebrews 11 at the end tonight, because that verse comes from the end of his life. But uh, I, wa- I want to look at some, some things from Joseph's life that's going to encourage you tonight. How many of you came to be encouraged tonight? I came to encourage you tonight, so I, I hope uh, you-, you could use a little bit of encouragement. Uh, if not, if you're already just so encouraged that you don't need any encouragement tonight, well, then just uh, come and give me a hug after church and uh, let some of your encouragement rub off on me, all right? Uh, Genesis 37, the, the story about Joseph, it runs from Genesis 37 all the way to uh, chapter 50, 50, 50. And so there's these, uh, I don't know, uh, 13, 14 chapters on on Joseph and, and his story. And it's the longest, as, as Bobby mentioned last week, it's the longest story in the whole Bible. This story about Joseph and what happened in his life is the longest story in the whole Bible. And it communicates a powerful, powerful lesson that we all need and we all need to remember as we live out our life. And so uh, we're going to see that tonight and I think it's going to be a blessing to you. Uh, Joseph, of course, is the Sunday school favorite. How many of you enjoyed learning about Joseph in Sunday school? That seemed to be one of my favorite stories about Joseph. And so I want to recap for you. We don't have time, of course, to read Genesis 37 through 50 tonight. And I know many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph. But let's uh, just sort of look at some of the, the, the big moments, the highlights from Joseph's story, if we will, tonight. Uh, in, in chapter 37, uh, let's read the first few verses of this and, and then uh, we'll, we'll sort of summarize as we go forward. It says that Joseph was 17 years old. Do I have any 17-year-olds here tonight? Any, any, hey, got Callista in here in the house. Any other 17-year-olds tonight? <laughs> I got some 17-year-olds by faith tonight. Uh, that's great too. Hey, we're learning about faith. We're exercising our faith tonight. Wonderful. Uh, So when Joseph was 17 years old, he was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Now, Joseph had 10 older brothers, uh, one older sister, 10 older brothers, and he had one younger brother named Benjamin. And uh, he was pasturing with the boys, the son, as he was a boy, it says he was a boy at 17, and he was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, it doesn't say whether or not, I want you to notice something in here. It doesn't, no, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll come, well, I don't, don't want to highlight that for you. I'll, I'll come back to that later. Now, verse three, it says, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. So there's some very unhealthy family dynamic going on in Jacob's family. He loves some of his kids more than others, and he's not embarrassed or shy about that. And in fact, because he loved Joseph, he made him a robe of many colors or a coat of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, his brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Jacob loves Joseph more than any of his other brothers. He makes this very special robe for him. Uh, a coat of many colors, uh, colors in those days, dyes in those days 
uh, were very uh, rare, very expensive. And so he bestows upon Joseph this wonderful garment that shows forth his love and, and that he is uh, his father Jacob's favorite son. But when his brothers see this, they hate him all the more. In verse 5, it says, now Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. I just picture them around the breakfast table. It doesn't say they're eating breakfast, but when you have a dream, it's usually at night. And when you tell someone the dream, it's usually at breakfast. So I don't think it's that unusual to imagine that they're sitting around breakfast. Maybe they're all still in their PJs, but Joseph is in his coat of many colors. You know, I don't know. That's just the picture that I have. So he says, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, sheaves of wheat, binding them together during the harvest time. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So they hated Joseph because he brought a bad report to his father. They hated Joseph because Jacob loved Joseph more than the others. They hated Joseph because Jacob made Joseph a coat. And now they hate him because of his dreams. Verse 9 says, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I dreamed another dream. Joseph here is not learning his lesson. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and his brothers, listen to this, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Like Joseph is even getting on his dad's nerves at this point. Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And as the story continues to unfold, uh, uh, Jacob sends his sons off to to, to send the, the the sheep where they could go to a pasture and and graze in a different country, a faraway land. And uh, he sends Joseph to go in and check on them. And in verse 18, when they see Joseph coming, verse 18 of chapter 37, it says, they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So they see Joseph coming. They could see him coming from a mile away because he, of course, was wearing his very expensive robe. I, I, I just picture that Joseph never took this thing off. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, the oldest son, heard it, he rescued Joseph out of their hands saying, let us not take his life Rather, let's just throw him into this pit. And Reuben was thinking that he would come later and rescue him out of the pit. But what ended up happening was a a, a band of merchants was passing by and uh, Judah was a very enterprising young man. And he said, hey, why don't we sell Joseph into slavery? We can make a little bit of money off of this situation. 
And so they did that. They sold Joseph into slavery to these merchants that were passing by on their way to Egypt. And it says in verse 23 that they stripped him of his robe, his robe of many colors that he wore. They took him, threw him into the pit, and then they sold him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. This is not a lot of money. In verse 31, it says they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe, the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father. Think of how callous these brothers are. What a horrible trick. What a horrible thing to do to your father. They send the robe of many colors. They bring it to their father and they said, we have found this. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on himself, and he mourned his son for many days. And his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so Jacob spends the rest of his days for the the next season of time, over 20 years in mourning. He refuses to be comforted. He refuses to allow his heart to get over what had happened to his son, his favorite son, Joseph. The story continues to unfold. And in verse 39, we, we know that Uh, Joseph is serving as a slave in in a man Potiphar's house, the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. It says that the Lord prospered Joseph in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he became successful and that the Lord caused everything that Joseph did to succeed. As Joseph begins to prosper and do well, he, he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife begins to try to entice Joseph, his master's wife, to entice him into bed. And he refuses. And it says day after day she would go to him. And he refused to do this. He said, how can I sin against your master and how can I sin against God? So finally she grabs his coat and he leaves his coat behind and she tells her husband that he tried to assault her or that he did assault her. And so Potiphar is very angry. Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. And here now Joseph is in prison in a strange land as a slave, forgotten, apparently forgotten, Joseph could have easily given in to sin. Joseph could have easily hardened his heart. Joseph could have easily said, look at what God has allowed me to go through. But that's not what Joseph does. Joseph again begins to serve in the prison. And in fact, the prison, the captain of the prison entrusts the whole prison to Joseph, even as he is a prisoner. He begins to run the prison for the chief prisoner. While he's in prison... Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's butler come and they're put in prison. 
They have a dream. They both have two dreams. Joseph rightly interprets these dreams with the help of God. And he tells them, he says, don't forget my dream. Don't forget this dream that I've dreamed. Tell Pharaoh I'm, I'm in here for no reason. Set me free from this prison. Yet the chief cupbearer forgot Joseph. For two whole years he forgot about Joseph. Joseph had been in prison for a long time. It had been a long time since he had left home. It had been about 13 years since Joseph left home at this point. And the Pharaoh has a dream. The Pharaoh has a dream that there's going to, well, the Pharaoh has a dream and no one can interpret it. And all of a sudden the cupbearer remembers there was this guy in prison who could interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh sins and gets Joseph and Joseph rightly interprets the dream that there's a famine that's going to come on upon the land. Joseph gives the Pharaoh instruction. He says, this is what you should do. There's going to be seven years of plenty, seven good years. We should save up in that season when things are going well. That's a good lesson. Amen. When things are going well, we ought to save up because then guess what? Because there might be times when things don't go so well. And that's what happened. There were seven good years and then there were seven harsh years where, where there was a famine in the land. A famine was total economic collapse, uh, no food, no scarcity of everything, but because they had saved up the food, the plenty during the seven years of plenty, they began to sell the grain that they had collected, the food that they had collected over those seven years. And the famine even strikes Jacob and his family who were not living in Egypt, but of course living in Canaan. And so Jacob sends his sons to go get food from the land of Egypt. And who is it that Jacob's sons end up standing before when they seek food? He ends up standing before Joseph. And through a series of tests, Joseph tests to see whether or not his brothers have changed whether they're, they're still the same men that threw him into the pit. And after he recognizes that they are changed men, that their hearts have been broken because of the evil that they did to their brother, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers as Joseph, his brother. They didn't recognize him because of all of the makeup and the different language that he was spoken. It had been 13 years and, and Joseph had grown from a boy into a man. In fact, no, it had been uh, nearly 25 years before uh, they came and visited him. And so, Joseph was a grown man when they came and, and they didn't recognize him. And so, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And I want you to hear from chapter 45 what Joseph says. Chapter 45 of Genesis. Verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his appearance. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and Joseph said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive for many, keep, keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house, ruler of over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. And so they go back, they bring, they, they tell their dad everything that has happened. He, can bear, he can't even believe it. Of course, they leave out the part where they sold uh, Joseph into slavery. They leave that part out, uh, curiously. Somehow he got to Egypt. We don't know, and it's amazing. But hey, he's alive. And so Jacob goes. He's reunited with Joseph in Egypt. Their whole family is saved from this great disaster and calamity. And the book of Genesis ends as Joseph is uh, at the end of his life, drawing his last breath. At the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph dies saying, don't leave me behind. When God delivers you out of Egypt, take me with you. Take me to the promised land. That's the story of Joseph. Now, when you read Joseph's story and as you summarize it, it, it kind of seems like he is perfect. If we look at his life and his story compared to those who came before him, it seems like he it doesn't have any sin issues at all. If you look at his father Jacob, well, you could rightly see and his sin issues were put on display. It wasn't hidden from us. If you look at Isaac, you see his shortcomings, his failures. Isaac of course, lied about his wife and let her be taken by another man. And God had to intervene and say, do not touch this man's wife. It's his wife, not his sister. Again, Abraham, his great-grandfather, did the same thing. All of these men, these, these forerunners of Joseph, had these glaring sin issues. And the Bible is honest about them. The Bible is the most honest book in the world. But we get to Joseph, and it seems like he's perfect. It seems like he never does anything wrong. But I want you to know that he did have an issue. He did have a sin issue that had to be dealt with. And I think part of the reason we don't see and notice Joseph's sin issue is because it's the same sin issue that we have a lot of times. It's a blind spot. It's the sin of pride. Joseph was so proud. The sin of pride and self-promotion. 
I mean, we've made a national pastime of this sin, the sin of pride, the sin of self-glory, what the Bible calls vain glory. We do it all the time. I mean, we, we, we curate our lives and, and share them on social media to, to make ourselves look perfect, like we're living these perfect lives. It's pride. It's pride. This was Joseph's issue, and of course we see that, as I highlight it for you, walking around in this royal robe, this coat of many colors everywhere he went, rubbing it in everybody's faces that he was his dad's favorite. There's not a, it doesn't seem that there's an ounce of humility at all in him. He's more than happy to tell all his brothers, you're going to bow down to me one day, you're going to bow down to me one day. Even to tell his father, you're going to bow down to me one day. His sin is pride and therefore God humbles him. God disciplines him because God loves Joseph. So he puts him in the pit and then he puts him in Potiphar's house and then he puts him in prison to be forgotten for a season. The Bible says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time God may exalt you. Listen, if we are full of pride, we will be humbled. And we are full of pride, so let me just say that. As people who are full of pride, we will be humbled. We will either humble ourselves or we will be humbled by God. I would submit to you that it's much better for you to humble yourself than to be humbled by God. James 4, 6 says that God gives grace Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 29.23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. In Matthew 23, 12, the Lord Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, we need to work constantly, continuously on humbling ourselves, on humbling ourselves so that we don't have to go through the same sort of disciplinary process that the Lord put Joseph through. Now, looking at Joseph's, Joseph's life, there's three points that I want to draw out for you that I believe will encourage you tonight. Like I said, I came to encourage you. The first one that we see, number one, is that God has a plan. God has a plan. God has a plan, and that is good news. We see that in Joseph's life. God had a plan, and his plan was to save his, his people, the, 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 the Israel people, the Jewish people, to save the family of Jacob. God had made a promise to Abraham. God had made a promise to Isaac. God had made a promise to Jacob. And God always keeps his promises. There was a famine coming way off in the future, some, some 40 years off, some, some way in the distance. And God looked down the corridor of time and he began to make a plan to save his chosen people. Now, I also need to highlight for you that God's plan was not Joseph's plan. 
Joseph probably had a plan. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I can guarantee you that whatever his plan was, it was not to be sold into slavery, falsely accused of assault, thrown into prison, forgotten. That was not Joseph's plan. But that was God's plan. Some 20 years in the future, God was working this plan. Again, the the words, these are Joseph's own words as he confesses to his brothers everything that has happened. He says, God sent me here. God sent me here. Three times he says it. God sent me here. This is God's plan. In Psalm 105, verse 17, it also tells us that he sent Joseph ahead of them as a slave. As a slave. At the very end of his life, as Joseph meets up with his brothers again, he says, what you intended as evil against me, God intended for good to preserve the lives of many people. I want you to notice the language here in Genesis 50, 20. It doesn't say that that what you intended for evil and that what you tried to do for me, that God took that and that he worked with it. No, what it actually says is though you meant evil, God was actually working it all along. God worked his plan. God is working his plan. God intended it for good. Now for us who are here today on the other side of the cross, the New Testament also declares to us that God has a plan. God has a plan. Amen. God has a plan. Isn't that great? When we look at the news and it seems like it's only chaos, we can sit back and and, and just relax and just say, hey, guess what? God's got a plan. God's got a plan. I don't have to get all worked up about this or that. We can rest in the confidence that we have that God has a plan. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 Paul says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, his plan, which he set forth in Christ. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. If you want to flip over with me to, we are in the first book, flip over with me to the last book, the book of Revelation. It tells us about God's plan. Go with me to the very end of Revelation, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, John, of course, seeing this vision that God had given him of what would take place. This this is where God is bringing human history. This is his plan. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or sorrow, or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is God's plan to unite once again heaven and earth. The fellowship that mankind and God shared with God in the Garden of Eden that has been broken because of sin. When Christ returns, heaven and earth will be reunited again. The picture we see in the book of Revelation is not God's people going up to heaven. It's heaven coming down to earth and making all things new again. And us dwelling with God forever and ever and ever and ever. This is God's plan Again, from Ephesians, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has a plan. God has a plan. Now, secondly, what we see from Joseph's life is not only does God have a plan, but secondly, God has the ability to accomplish his plan. That's also good. It makes no, it's no good if you are, have plans, but you don't have the ability to accomplish it. It does nobody any good for you to make plans. I, I have plans to be a billionaire one day, but I have no plans to, I have no power to make it happen. It does nobody any good. God is not like that. God not only has a plan, but he has the power, the ability to accomplish his plan. Isaiah 51 verse 9 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor is his ear dull that he cannot hear. Jeremiah 32 17 says, O Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. From Joseph's life, we see that God is so powerful that he is even able to use the actions of sinful men to accomplish his plan. He's even able to use the the sinful actions of these rebellious brothers to accomplish his plan. That's how powerful God is. That even the wicked actions and deeds of sinful men God uses even those to accomplish his plan and purpose. Amen. And so whatever is happening in the world today, God is working his plan to bring it to that place that we read when heaven and earth will be united again. That's where he's taking human history. 
and God is the author of history. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, the apostles pray this incredible prayer. The apostles have been preaching in Jerusalem. There's been some miracles that have been performed. It's awesome what God has done. There's a lame man that's been healed. It's incredible. Acts chapter 4. But the people that opposed Christ and put him on a cross are also now beginning to oppose the church. And so they, they arrest Peter and John. They warn them. They say, you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they beat them up and they say, don't do this. If you do this again, something worse is going to happen to you. And so in Acts chapter 4, the, the church and the apostles gathered to pray. It's an incredible prayer. But I just want to highlight to you verse 28, verse 27, verse 27 and 28. As they pray, they're praying, they pray to the sovereign Lord. And they say, truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they gathered together against Jesus, but verse 28 says, they gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That, that Pontius Pilate and, and Herod and the Gentile rulers and the Jewish leaders, as they all rebelled against Christ and they put Christ on the cross, Rebelling against God, they were actually accomplishing the will of God. They were actually God's instrument to bring about what God had planned from the beginning. Our God not only has a plan, he has the ability to accomplish his plan. And he is so powerful that he can even use the rebellious acts of sinful man to accomplish his divine plan. So we don't have to live in fear. That's what the apostles were struggling with. They had been beaten. They were being threatened with their own lives. The, the temptation would have been to give in to fear. But they said, God, you are the sovereign Lord. And even, you, you even accomplish your plan through the sinful actions of sinful men. That gives us hope. That gives us faith. That gives us courage. God has the ability to accomplish his plan. For us, we only need to look at the empty tomb. The tomb is empty today. It shows us the power of God. Jesus is not dead today, but he is alive. He is risen from the dead, victorious. Amen. Seated today at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning as king of the universe. The tomb is empty. Christ has been raised. And in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, because Christ has been raised, what that means is that we too will also be raised. That's the message of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 
Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, speaking of Adam, by a man came death, by a man also, speaking of Christ, has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. How many of you belong to Christ? Everyone who has passed away, everyone who is in Christ, who, who has died in this life, they die in faith, awaiting this resurrection of the dead, of which Christ is the first fruits. It says, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ will also be raised. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Verse 25, for he must reign. Christ is reigning right now, right? He's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Christ right now is throwing down his enemies. His enemies right now are being cast down, thrown down. You say, well, it looks like the enemy's winning right now. Listen, what is happening right now cannot stand. It will fall apart. It will come to naught. It is built on shifting sand. Whatever is not built on Christ will be thrown down, will be cast down by himself. And he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who will put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. The tomb is empty. Jesus is on the throne. God has a plan. He has the ability to carry out his plan. And number three, God will bring his plan to completion. God has a plan. He has the ability to accomplish his plan and he will accomplish his plan. Proverbs 30 verse five says that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. We need to take refuge in God. God is our refuge and strength. The government is not our refuge in strength. Our job is not our refuge in strength. Our 401k is not our refuge in strength. God is our shield. God is our warrior. God is the one who protects us and watches over us and has a plan for each one of us. Every word of God proves true. Every single one. He is a refuge and a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 12, verse six, the words of the Lord are flawless. 
like silver refined in a furnace, like gold purified seven times. The words of the Lord are perfect. Romans 8, 28 says that we know, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, in this life, we're going to go through times, trials, tests. Joseph didn't enjoy it when he got thrown in the pit. He didn't enjoy it when he was falsely accused. He didn't enjoy it when he was sold into slavery. He didn't enjoy it when he was thrown into prison. He didn't enjoy it. Listen, in this life, we go through tests, we go through trials, we go through hardship, but it does not mean that God is not in control. It does not mean that God does not have a plan. The story of Joseph tells us that in spite of all of the hardship, in spite of all of the pain, in spite of all of the difficulty, in spite of all of the tests and the trials that we go through in this life, that God is working his plan. And his plan is good. His plan is better than our plan. His plan is to bring salvation. To bring salvation. So if you're in the middle of a trial, if you're in the middle of a test, maybe you came here tonight discouraged. Let me encourage you tonight. You're not at the end of your story. Your story's not over yet. Your story's still being written. Don't give up on God. Don't throw in the towel on God. He is working his plan. He has a plan. He has the power to accomplish his plan. And he will do what he has promised to do. You say, I don't understand how this could have happened. I don't understand how God can work all things. Listen, I don't understand how he can do it either. But I trust in his word. Because I trust in him. And I know that every word of his proves true. And he will prove it to you as well. He will prove it to you as well. God has a plan. God has a plan. Our God is so big. Our God is so mighty. Our God is so strong. We look at what's happening in the world today and we say, man, what is going on? I'll tell you what God, what's going on. God is working his plan. That's what's going on. God is bringing history to fulfillment. God is bringing humanity. He is writing the story. That is what is going on. And we as God's people need to take heart that he is working his plan. Amen. So in conclusion, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. How many of you glad that's my conclusion and not my introduction tonight? Amen. <laughs> Hebrews 11. There's one verse here about Joseph. Hebrews 11, verse 22. Talking about faith. And Joseph never, through all of his trials, he never lost the faith. Not to say his faith was never tested. But he stayed faithful to God. Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning 
his bones. I love that Joseph, when he comes to the end of his life, he looks back upon his life and he sees the sovereign hand of God. He sees the providential hand of God. And he can declare, he says, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. And as he begins to, to realize that his time is over, that he is in Egypt, he's looking forward to that future fulfillment of the promise of God. He begins to declare, he says, God is one day going to lead the children of Israel out. He's going to lead you out of this land. God is going to keep his promise. And on that day, when he sets you free from the land of Egypt, on that day, don't forget me. Take me with you. Don't leave me here in this land because I'm not an Egyptian. Though I may have lived in this land, I'm not from this place. I am a, I am a child of God. I'm part of the people of God. Take me with you. Don't bury me here in Egypt, which is a type of the world, but take me into the promised land. And likewise, all of us, when we come to the end of our lives as children of God, we too are looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise. A future exodus, if you will. A future promised land, if you will. We're looking forward to that resurrection the new heavens, the new earth, and all things being made new. Joseph died in faith, knowing that one day God would give to Israel the land that he had promised them. What's interesting is that Israel, they didn't enter into that promised land in that generation, though they were supposed to. They, they rebelled against God. They rebelled in unbelief. And for 40 years, they wandered in the desert. What that means is that it was somebody's job for 40 years to carry around Joseph's bones. You ever think about that? Somebody, somebody's job. I believe that Joseph, even as he was carried around, his bones were even a testimony that he had more faith than that generation that died in unbelief in the wilderness. Joseph went into the promised land, but that first generation didn't because they didn't have faith, but Joseph had faith. So Joseph goes into the promised land. The rest of that generation fell and was buried in the desert, but not Joseph. That's what faith does. Faith takes us into the promises of God. Faith takes us into the promises of God. Unbelief keeps us in the wilderness. Unbelief keeps us bound in sin. Unbelief keeps us bound in brokenness. Unbelief. But if we will, like Joseph, hold fast to the Lord, hold fast to his word, hold fast in faith, we will see the promises of God come to fulfillment in our lives and in the future generations that God is, is bringing behind us. Amen. I'm going to invite us to stand tonight. God has a plan. Amen. God has the power to accomplish his plan. Amen. And God will accomplish his plan. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be settled 
in our confidence in you. Lord, that we would be people of faith. Lord, though we go through many trials, though we go through uh, even things that we do not understand. Lord, we do not pretend to understand everything that you are doing all the time, but your word tells us that you are working your plan. So Lord, we choose to believe your word and not the voice of the enemy. We choose to have faith and not fear. We choose to walk in belief and not in doubt. Lord, help us through your spirit to live day by day as people of faith to make the choice that we will believe you and believe your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.